Greg here with Zachary Fillingham, Managing Editor of GeopoliticalMonitor.com. And today we're going to talk about the decline of one of the world's most important water systems, the Indus Basin. So, Zach, this is a, a basin I'm not too familiar with. Tell us a bit about it and why it's important. All right. Well, um, the Indus Basin is primarily important because of its geo- geopolitical position or geographic position, um, insofar that it is... It spans a very important region of the world, a very densely populated region of the world. Um, it includes India, China, uh, and Pakistan, which are three geopolitical heavyweights. The headwaters fall under the Tibetan Plateau, so which is controlled by China. And then it flows um, through India and then drains, mostly flows through Pakistan before draining in the Arabian Sea. Um, the... That territory includes 237 million people who live there. Uh, it's a source of drinking water in a part of the world where uh, water, fresh water is in very short supply. Uh, these are some of the, the most water-stressed countries in the world. Um, it's a local economic driver uh, in, ter- <clears throat> in terms of fishing and agriculture. Uh, in, the, in the case of Pakistan, over 24 million people are, are engaged in agriculture as their primary economic activity. Uh, which which accounts for forty percent of the economically active population. Uh, so obviously, the the health of this water system is an extremely important economic consideration, particularly in Pakistan, um, where the Indus flows through. So and finally, the waters are used for hydropower stations uh, to produce electricity. And again, in, in terms of Pakistan, this is an incredibly important consideration because Pakistan, as we all know, is an extremely or has has suffered from electric, electricity shortages, which have bottlenecked its economic growth for a long time. So. So, yes, for all these all these reasons, the Indus Basin uh, and the river system that it feeds are extremely important for the South Asian uh, countries it flows through. And Zach, what are the factors that are impacting the water supply in the Indus Basin? Okay, so some of the factors are old um, and kind of expected at this point. Uh, basically, there's a lot of dam building that goes on uh, in the Indus Basin and similar basins throughout Asia and throughout the world. Um, the, uh, the more dams that are built, the less uh, volume, the, the, the weaker the flow is downstream. So um, we have a good map on, on the website. I, um, I recommend going checking, checking it out uh, because really when you look at the map and you imagine it flowing downward from the Tibetan Plateau, you can see how the geography plays into the geopolitics of a river system like the Indus. Basically, the upstream country that controls the headwaters has the most leverage over downstream countries. Um, the, so the water, the river system forms in China, flows downward through India, India, and then through Pakistan. So in that, um, in that equation, Pakistan has the least amount of power. It basically has to accept whatever happens upstream in India and China. Uh, if China decides to dam heavily, then that will affect the flow, or that will affect the flow not only in Pakistan but India as well. So basically. In Indus and other basins, you have a lot of dam building that has been that has taken place. Um, that has already affected flow uh, in a big way, and it continues to proceed. Right, there are still dams being built. In the case of Pakistan, there are two major dams being built or being planned right now. One's a 
4,500 megawatt dam in uh, Gilgit Balistan. And then there's another around 2,000 megawatt project that's going in uh, the Khyber Patungwa province. Um, so, <clears throat> so there's new dams, and there's also the problem of old dams that are aging over time. Um, and as we know, Pakistan is a country... Uh, I'm going to mostly be talking about Pakistan here because uh, most of the problem has to do with Pakistan, and Pakistan has the majority of the Indus system running through it. Uh, so most of Pakistan's um, uh, dam infrastructure is aging over time. There's uh, a lot of silt buildup because this river system is particularly silt-heavy, so silt uh, affects the, the reservoirs that were built before. Um, it, it necessitates more uh, maintenance and upgrading of pre-existing dams. And, and as we know from <clears throat> the various economic articles or economic focus articles that we've published on Pakistan of late, um, the government of Pakistan is grappling with its own variety of economic problems and cannot necessarily devote huge resources to upgrading and maintaining its dam infrastructure. So the end result is, you. Uh, oh, and the same applies for irrigation uh, infrastructure. Uh, Pakistan's irrigation infrastructure is mostly colonial era. Um, it's, it's woefully inefficient, and it needs upgrading um, to deal with the new reality. And this leads into the newer impacts uh, that are affecting the water system. And those all pertain to, um, predictably, climate change. Uh, so climate change can can alter the water volume in a, a, a basin system in a variety of ways. It can shift established precipitation patterns that are um, basically like rendering certain irrigation systems null and void, um, creating sort of contingencies that planners are, are not prepared for. It can cause increased evaporation in reservoirs, so uh, which again... <coughs> impacts these pre-existing irrigation systems, causes disruptions um, in water supply to farmers that can um, re uh, result in decreased production. And finally, which is primarily the focus of this latest article series on the geopolitical monitor, it can also melt glaciers as, as the temperature increases at higher altitudes. These, these glaciers that feed these um, extensive water systems, they begin to melt. And as they melt, uh, the water actually increases. So flow increases because there's more water being produced as they melt. But we're going to get to a point, which is called uh, peak water, where <clears throat> uh, the, the glacier is melted and uh, it impacts volume in a, in, in a sort of downward way. So there'll be less volume and that, that adjustment will be permanent. So... And to our uh, listeners, I'm on the website now, geopoliticalmonitor.com, looking at the map, and the article is Glacier Watch Indus Basin. You can check it out. And I'm looking at uh, the river system flowing down to Pakistan. Yeah, uh, just, just, just one moment. Uh, we're going to do a series of articles on these basins because um, glacier melting and peak water is a problem that affects basins all over the world. Um, and since climate change is different uh, and the glaciers are different, uh, so every, every basin has a different peak water point and every basin has a different uh, impact of, of how much glacier melt will affect downriver flow. And um, the Indus Basin is, is for, for example, the Indus Basin is one where 
glacier melt will have a high impact on downriver volume, but um, we're still a far way away from that uh, peak water inflection point, which is expected around 2070. But as the article argues, and as we will find out in this podcast, um, the water, pr- the problems within the Indus Basin are already extensive. So as these these future sort of glacier-related problems become more pronounced, um, we might move to a real crisis-type situation. So, Zach, how bad are the water problems in Pakistan? All right. So, yeah, you, you might have come across an article in the past that had, you know, some sort of... Uh, hyperbolic description, ticking time bomb, you know, disaster rain to happen, those sort of things. Um, And basically, when you look at all the various metrics about Pakistan's water crisis, it's it's um, kind of understandable. Um, So I'm going to go through a list of just just give a sense of of what the water situation is like in Pakistan. So, um, with, like within Pakistan, within the national dam system reservoirs, Pakistan only has about 30 days worth of water storage capacity, um, which is very, very, very short span. Um, compared to India, it, India has 190 days worth of storage. And compared to the United States, uh, the USA has 900 days of storage. So 30 days, obviously not a lot at all. And um, it makes Pakistan particularly susceptible to droughts and disruptions, as we were just discussing, um, potentially climate change related disruptions and weather patterns and uh, distribution. Um, so per capita availability in Pakistan, and this, this is like a sort of stark metric that gives you a sense of how quickly things are changing uh, in terms of the water situation in Pakistan. So per capita water availability was 1,500 cubic meters per person in 2009. So that's about 10 years ago. Um, Now it's 1,000, which is the IMF threshold for water scarcity. So basically per capita water availability has has crossed the the water scarcity um, point. And again, we can expect it to get worse over time. Um, 83% of the water supplies in Sindh, which is the southern province of Karachi, are contaminated with sewage and industrial waste. Um, In Karachi in particular, that number is 90%, so it's highly polluted. Um, It's it's not uh, trustworthy. It's not good fresh water. Um, Pakistan has the highest intensity rate. Uh, which is water use per unit of GDP in the world. So the economy is highly inefficient and it uses an extremely abnormally large amount of water to produce agriculture and manufacture outputs. Um, Many of Pakistan's cities, actually it's kind of interesting because Pakistan actually has had progress in terms of delivering water to its population, but most of that progress has been in in the rural context. Um, and Pakistan cities are in particular um, struggling to produce or strug- struggling to distribute fresh water to their growing populations. They have the, the, the double pressure of, of exploding population and uh, decreased supply. Um, so in this situation, and as I said before, there's not a lot of public money that's being invested into new um, water infrastructure. So you have water distribution that's being increasingly done by um, sort of ad hoc private tanker fleets. So like um, 
water trucks driving around uh, Pakistan's municipalities, delivering water. Since they have to truck it in from increasingly further away, uh, the water prices are high, and sometimes these water truck rackets are actually criminal. Um, There's a whole bunch of racketeering that goes on. Um, Sometimes you have black market uh, racketeers who are siphoning off from public water systems and then selling it it on the black market. And these, these criminal outfits are organized and armed to such a degree that they, they actually um, they represent a, a, a threat to Pakistan's uh, municipal and national security services. Um, so uh, this, is, this is all combining to, to create a lot of sort of local ground-level tensions um, in terms of the civilian population and the government, uh, the civilian population, rightfully views the government as totally unable to provide what is a sort of basic element of uh, human survival in fresh water. Uh, and finally, so finally, groundwater extraction uh, in Pakistan's major aquifers is well over the rate of replacement, and the country is, is home to some of the most stressed underground reservoirs in the world. Um, in particular, there's a large <coughs> aquifer that spans the Indus Basin and is shared by both Pakistan and India. And most of the agricultural activity in that territory is a combination of overland irrigation systems, which would be fed from the, um, the Indus River systems and underground uh, uh, reserves that are fed by these aquifers. Both are under extreme stress, and, and we're going to find that both... Uh, both will be bottlenecked in the future and increase and lead to um, basically less water for more people. And what kind of conflicts uh, can we expect to result from these water shortages? All right. So like one of the reasons we're focusing on water <clears throat> on geopolitical monitor is because obviously it's a very important resource. And uh, um, when you, when you focus on these sort of, key resources, uh, they often lead to ethnic or sectarian competition and conflict within a country. And sometimes these, these, these causal connections are not very clear, right? Um, because, you know, you might have a situation where water is, is creating, as I alluded to before, tensions between uh, civilian population and the government. Those tensions boil over in some sort of mass civil unrest. But it's not necessarily always going to be incredibly clear um, that it was this, you know, this water shortage that caused it is just it created the the circumstances for something to occur. Right. I, I think a lot of people cite the the protests in Syria as an example. And there have been sort of opinions on both sides of this, both sides of this debate. Some people agree with this. Uh, some people don't. But the argument is that um, there was climate change and water-related impacts on farming is what created the urbanization, is what created the initial protests, the initial Arab Spring spring protests that led uh, ultimately to the Syrian civil war. So you have this sort of cascading effect um, that these environmental issues can have. So if we look at Pakistan in particular, 
Uh, it's a country with uh, a lot of potential ethnic, like uh, national, intra-state sectarian competition. You have um, like you have the sort of classical um, competition between the uh, Sindhi population in the south, the Punjab Punjabi population in the east. You also have the Baloks in the west, who have um, you know, basically have an ongoing insurgency going right now. Uh, there's various mo- movements to try to establish Balak- Balakistan, and uh, you also have the growth of pa- uh, Pashtun nationalism, the quote-unquote Pashtun Spring that's um, basically unfolding right now um, and being cracked down on by the Pakistani army. So long, start, long, long story short, you basically there are no shortage of potential fault lines uh, for sectarian ethnic religious competition within Pakistan that these, kind of re- uh, that these kinds of resource these stressed resources, this competition for limited resources um, can um, cause to worsen. And obviously water, you know, water is just one of these things. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, trends that are unfolding in Pakistan right now that are basically, it's not, um, there are a lot of factors that can drive these different groups into into more fervent competition um there's water uh jobs um you know no shortage right there's a lot of internal displacement etc etc like even you know belt and road uh protests in Balochistan. but i digress i don't want to get into don't want to get too off topic here so that's one so you have interstate sectarian competition in Pakistan, you also have an extremely high rate of urbanization. Um, Pakistan's urbanizing at the highest rate in South Asia. Uh, but to, for example, just to give a sense, the total population in Pakistan's top cities jumped from 23 million in 1998 to 40 million in 2017. Um, and unsurprisingly, there's also a high population growth rate, which is in part driving urbanization as well. Um, so Pakistan has had a history and continues to have a history of bad uh, family pan- planning, bad long-term family planning policy. And the country is now the fifth most populous country in the world with 207 million people. Um, so in 1970, Pakistan had 58 million people. So that's pretty explosive population growth over <clears throat> over that span. So those are the factors that are driving the potential for intrastate conflict, water-related intrastate conflict, and there's also um, water can play into interstate conflict as well. Um, India-Kashmir being the big one, um, because, but there's also, and sort of like, you know, India, uh, India-Pakistan India over Kashmir, obviously we saw it recently over couple months ago we saw how that's in fact we did a podcast on it we saw that situation can blow up um, but there's also there's also India China considerations here particularly because China has geographic control over the Indus headwaters um, and the Brahmaputra headwaters that will be a future article because it's a different basin um, and the two countries have fought a war in the past uh, back in the 60s and um, they have a variety of territorial dis- 
disputes that are unresolved. Um, a couple of years ago, we saw one flare up in the Docklam Plateau, for example. And finally, these countries are nuclear arms, so any any potential conflict is of uh, uh, is very concerning. Now, Zach, uh, previously in our uh, discussion and also in the article, you talk about the timeline for the water shortage becoming a serious issue as being sometime this century. Uh, so what can we expect for the future, both in the immediate term as water levels rise uh, and the longer term as they uh, start to decline? Okay, so so basically um, <clears throat> the situation that sort of frames these articles is the, the glacier is melting, right? So the glacier is melting, um, and and the articles include a very a very good. Um, they're informed by a, a very sort of in depth article that was recently published in um, I believe it was Nature and Climate Change. Uh, the links in the articles, so I encourage everyone to go and read the original article because it goes through each basin, each and and their different sort of rates of decline. Uh, so, so the issue of glacier melt itself is not, and it's not a particularly alarmist issue, right? Like it's alarming, but it's not in and of itself enough to create sort of disaster type situation within these basins. However, it is a factor that can accentuate pre-existing stressors and and um, make a bad situation worse. So, um, the glacier systems as they existed. Uh, they kind of modulate volume within the, the river system and they they insulate against uh, um, they insulate against seasonal or other disruptions, whether they're you know too much rain, too little rain, whatever, um, over the course of a year. As the glaciers decline and disappear, you're gonna lose that modulating influence, so the droughts will be drier and the surges will be wetter. Um, so <clears throat> there's that when they're gone, the amount of volume that they create downstream again varies. Um, but it's like, it's not, it's not like the whole river system is going to dry up or anything. Right. However, um, as we move towards peak water, which in the case of the Indus again is, is 2070. So it's, it's still a ways to go. Um, it's obviously going to create, it's, it's going to make um, the situation worse, right? So we need to view glacier melt within the context of all these other uh, political and economic and, and human um, trends that are currently unfolding within the Indus. So basically, glacier melt in and of itself is not going not gonna to be a disastrous game changer. It's something to think about more in the future in terms of the Indus. However, the Indus it has been identified as one of the basins that's particularly susceptible to glacier melt in terms of downriver flow. Okay, so that's one consideration for the future. Another consider consideration for the future, and this one is more negative in the short and medium term, is the lack of political will to do anything about it in Pakistan. Arguably, the lack of means to do anything about it as well. So... Um, Basically, the issue of a kind of holistic, national, serious approach towards uh, the water shortages and the, the, the drawbacks in Pakistan's water system, it, it doesn't exist on the national level. It exists on the regional level because the regional governments, the municipalities, they need to deal with the day-to-day -day reality of, um, 
uh, base of the country's terrible water system. So, <clears throat> so that in that sense, we can expect more of the same, more of the problem getting worse and worse over time because there's basically there's no serious national um, plan to deal with it at this present time. And also something we haven't gotten into in this uh, podcast, but there's like, obviously the basin spans three countries, right? Ideally, you would have some sort of uh, international, some sort of regional institution, some sort of regional regime to deal with, uh, to manage this resource, right? Because it's a key resource for all three countries. However, all the way back to the Indus Water Treaties, which is about the 1960, or yeah, I think 1960 or 1970, um, all the way back then, Pakistan and India, and the Indus Waters Treaty only deals with Pakistan and India, doesn't, doesn't include China, um, oh, or Afghanistan. But um, uh, basically, it's only a bilateral treaty. It doesn't include all of the countries. And um, even that bilateral treaty is is victim to uh, upticks in hostilities between uh, Islamabad and Delhi. So as, as we saw in the Kashmir conflict, where you had members of the Indian government who were basically threatening <clears throat> to pull out of the Indus Water Treaties and to, to start using much more up, upstream flow. So there's, there's no regional regime to manage the Indus waters <clears throat> right now. And it, like, there's no reason to believe there will be one anytime soon. So that's another reason uh, that we're probably going to see the situation get worse before it gets better. Um, yeah, so basically, short-term negative outlook, and uh, unless we start seeing a sort of national plan in Pakistan, who's uh, which is the most serious situation right now, and or some sort of regional approach to managing the waters, um, we can expect the situation to get worse. And just just one final point, uh, like the Indus Basin is not unique in the world. There are plenty of other water systems that are similarly stressed. Uh, for example, the Mekong or the Brahmaputra. And um, most of the factors that you see here uh, also exist in these other uh, examples. And, um, you know, it's a case of lack of long-term national planning and a lack of regional cooperation. Uh, this is obviously a unique sort of situation where if, if, if you're the upstream country, you have full control over um, sort of life-giving, economically crucial resource. Um, and, and that has made it difficult to sort of forge um, useful and effective regional regimes to control these resources. Uh, another classic example is the Nile between uh, Egypt, Sudan, and uh, Ethiopia and the Grand Renaissance Dam, which we've also posted articles on in the past. But uh, but I think I am definitely past my time limit, so I think we'll call it at that. So Fascinating. But, uh, well, thank you so much, Zach. And uh, clearly, this is an important issue that will have uh, serious consequences on regional power dynamics uh, and uh, politics moving forward in years and decades to come. So again, to our listeners who want to read more about this issue, 
You can check out the article on our website, geopoliticalmonitor.com, and the article's title is Glacier Watch Indus Basin. Uh, And as Zach mentioned, this is the first in a series of articles on glacier melting worldwide and the geopolitical ramifications of those events. So thank you again to our listeners uh, and look forward to speaking next time. Talk to you then. 